Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My first novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is out now in hardback. If you've been waiting for the paperback, it's coming in February with an exclusive special edition from waterstones.com featuring never-before-seen content with an essay about writing, creativity and your erotic imagination and a bonus secret saucy scene. And you get sprayed edges. Your book listeners can also pre-order my next novel, Careering, from Waterstones. It's coming in March. There's a limited number of signed copies available, and I hear they're selling fast. Now, on to today's guest, Lindsay Kelk. Lindsay is a superstar author. Her brilliant, bright rom-coms sell in their squillions, and it's not hard to see why. Her latest, On a Night Like This, is Spoonable Escapism. Sweeter and more mood-boosting than ice cream. Also, I've never met an ice cream that made me laugh so much as this did. She also hosts two podcasts, full coverage for beauty lovers and tights and fights for wrestling fans. She lives in Los Angeles, but we got to actually hang out with her on her UK tour. We talked about Virginia Andrews. We cried about Paula Dazinger. We called out James Herbert and his reductive male gaze. And we think we declared peace in the culture wars. And we laughed a lot. Uh, Lindsay used to work in publishing and you worked on the Mary-Kate Nashley books. I did, for my sins. How did those books work? Like, What sort of shape were they in when they got to you? So by the time the fiction books um, were pretty much all done, but uh, we also did brand extension books, which was... My team was the film and TV licensing, so any book that was related to film or a movie or a brand, so like a Noddy or a Dr Zeus or... My own personal nemesis, Fifi and the Flower Dots. Uh, yeah, honestly, it just a lot of my life went into that. Uh, we worked on those books. Um, so the Mary-Kate and Ashley fiction books we brought in from the US and then we would do sort of adjacent books that we created. We did a style guide, which was very fun. Mary-Kate and Ashley's style tips for tweens, um, which they very kindly sent us actual tips from the twins that were things like add a vintage watch um, and I like it's for a 12 year old uh, Rolex feels a little bit out of their reach so uh, you can yeah. see why they've gone on to what's their brand called Not there's one that's got the James row. in it there's the row James and the row and nice I met them at an event yeah I met them and they were merrily telling me that that was their next plan was to launch fashion and this was when they were still peak tween 
and it was an event at I think the Soho Hotel and one of them was dead excited because they'd just seen Ross from Friends <laughs> and I was like but you're so famous um, and the other one was telling us how they were going to launch this fashion brand and everyone in the room was like sure Jan um, <laughs> at them and now we all are fools because uh, they are massively famous fashion designers and super successful and really good and no- normally when someone says I'm launching a fashion brand you think oh great you know spangly t-shirt retails at 29.99 or whatever yeah. good luck with that but no it's like proper like yeah, luxe it's super high end they run a bunch of CFDA awards and everything and this was sort of the mid 2000s so it was peak Paris Hilton playboy juicy couture type stuff no um, one would have blamed them if they wanted to have those like pube skimming trousers I mean it was uh, the style at the time alright so let's go back to those honey Y2K days <laughs> Lindsay what were you reading then in those what early aughts what was I reading um, so I graduated um, in 2002 and had done English and basically didn't want to pick up a book for about four years because I'm like, there's so many books. Um, so I did, I sort of had an early 2000s dip out. And then when I got my job in publishing, so I did a couple of jobs in PR first, I got very book clubby. I used to be a very snobby reader and not even in a cool way. Um, but I think, because I grew up in a mining village where reading was not the best pastime that you could choose if you wanted to be popular. And I was a big fan of it. So hence I wasn't very popular. Uh, so I think they just went through a big phase of being told what you had to read. And then I morphed that into, I internalised a lot of the snobbery. So I was reading a lot of those 2000s book club books, like Curious Incident at the Dark of Nighttime and Life of Pi and all that stuff. And then I was being very edgy and cool and reading my Bright East and Ellis and my Donna Tartt on the, on the side being like, oh my God, I read The Secret History every year, which I still do. Um, but yeah, I, I very much internalised what you should read rather than what I wanted to read. Growing up, you were a big reader. Huge, yes. So my mum taught me and my brother, my brother's older, she taught us to read very young before we went to school because she had very little faith in in the school. We all went to the same school because it was a tiny mining village, so obviously the same teachers that my mum had had before us. So she was like, let's let's get this taken care of. Um, So I was reading really young and then I would just literally read anything. Um, And I read like all the books that the school had and I read all the books that the library had and then I would just if there was a book it was in my hands um and just like really inappropriate really really inappropriate books for a very young child excellent tell me about those yeah um the first one actually fun story because I actually reread it recently because I have such a visceral memory of reading it we were on holiday with my dad's family and my uncle had this James Herbert book and it can't have been later than 1987 just because of who was on the holiday and I remember it so clearly and it was called The Magic Cottage and I remember picking it up and reading it and my mum saying like should she be reading this is this okay for her and my uncle saying like, oh yeah it's fine there's nothing dodgy in it it's nothing that dodgy she won't get it anyway because I can't have been more than six or seven um, Whoa. right right and all I could remember that there was a squirrel in it that dies and comes back to life spoiler alert for anyone <laughs> planning to read The Magic Cottage 1987 spoiler alert so I read it recently because I was like you know what? I always tell that story about inappropriate books I read so I should probably check it out and like it is turns out Uncle David deeply inappropriate deeply inappropriate but the the squirrel was accurate and James Herbert I mean that's not your classic you know lace or the stud or that kind of it was dead weird and I did I did I read a lot of Barbara Taylor Bradford because my mum loved Barbara Taylor Bradford um, and I read all of Virginia Andrews (laughs) before the age of 12 and she comes uh, up a lot on this yeah. podcast. I think all the all the women I love 
were worship at the altar, the yeah. mad incestuous altar of V.C. Andrews. And I started with the Heaven series and not the Flowers in the Attic series because that's what they had in the library when I went. Um, and they let me take it out at like the age of 12. So what they were thinking, I do not know. But I was obsessed. I also reread a lot of those in lockdown, actually. Obsessed. How, I mean, because lockdown intense anyway i imagine that universe is a very weird one to be in when you can't go outside yeah so strange because it is quite claustrophobic and i read the heaven series and i read the flowers in the attic series um and they are very claustrophobic very intense but all those characters are at some point locked in places so yeah i don't have any memory of the heaven series oh my god it's so good it's the castile family saga and it is about uh, a girl called Heaven who grows up in the willies in the mountains. <laughs> I think it's the Georgia mountains. And it's funny because my husband's family now is from sort of the North South Carolina, Georgia area. And I always like to be like, is this you? And it's not because it's deeply offensive. Is he from the willies? He's not from the willies. He's from Spartanburg. Uh, so it's very upsetting. I imagine Americans don't find the willies as hilarious no, as we do. No, not even a little bit. And they were always eating biscuits and gravy for breakfast. And as a kid, I'm like, what is wrong with these monsters? I'm like, that's the abuse. That's the child. <laughs> biscuits and gravy you savages um but yeah she grows up with she's the oldest family uh, child of this family and the dad is really cruel to her and then the stepmom because her mom died in childbirth and that's her curse is she murdered her perfect mother by being born mm. and then the stepmother sort of hates her but the granny and grandpa love her and then obviously it just all falls apart in the style of heaven uh, that virginia andrews books always do and the dad sells off the kids he just sells all the kids. Uh, and then you sort of follow their lives and she finds out who she really is, who her real dad was, who her real mum was, some lot, lots of tortured romances. Um, but wow, it's a lot for a child. Your brain's say. not formed. It's not, no, it's not okay. it's too spongy for yes. us. <laughs> yes. Author to author, though, I'm struggling at the moment with getting my third novel going and the sort of, would this happen? Is this a bit preposterous? Is this a bit of a leap? Hearing about that plot, I'm like, no. Not preposterous at all. Yeah. It's fine. No, Very it's, comforted by that. She fell in love with her uncle and then he rode a horse into the sea. I mean, really, just give that a quick read and you will feel really good about any and all decisions you ever make plot-wise. I love how eclectic and varied your reading journey has been. Um, and what I love so much about um, your books and your latest book, On a Night Like This, is that it's it's so smart and light and sort of unapologetically fun and joyous. And there's no, you're like it's really... I just feel like it's such a reader's book. And did you have a moment when you thought, I need to, all these sort of very like heavy, serious Oprah books, actually I can embrace the fun and I can embrace reading with this pure pleasure. Not that some of those books aren't pure pleasure. No, but. no, I totally understand. Um, I, no, um, <laughs> it's the answer. I grew up as being like a really... I mean, we would say nerdy now, but in the 80s, I was just unpopular. Like, we didn't have a cute tag for it. You were just a loser that read books. Um, and I always wrote and I would always read. And um, I think I thought I was, I was thought you had to be very serious to be a, a writer and a reader. I didn't know you could read for fun, even though I was reading things like Virginia Andrews, which, you know, now it's like, oh, it's so soapy and pulpy. But when you're a teenager, it's incredibly serious business because any reading endeavor as a teenager, I was reading Sweet Valley High and Sweet Dreams and Point Horrors, but it was like, I was the serious one just because it was a book. And then as I went through uni, like I say, my lecturer, my writing tutor actually gave me a secret history because I was reading Brett Easton Ellis and he was like, I think you should read this instead. It's it's the same, but not. And a lady did it. And I was like, what? A woman can write this kind of book? And then when I actually wrote my first book, which was a rom-com called I Heart New York, 
like all of my friends when I told them were so shocked because they were like oh we just thought you would write something very serious and intellectual because you're so serious and intellectual I'm like not secretly not it turns out um and it took me a really really long time to reconcile those two identities and I think because there is such intellectual snobbery around I mean everything um but around books and especially around women's writing and books that women might choose to write and read it took me a really really hard time to say it's actually okay for me to do this and not apologize for it and not be apologetic and the new one it was definitely because I wrote that during lockdown like it it was a different feeling to it because it felt like for the first time I was allowed to just go balls to the wall let's do something that makes me happy doing it and might make people happy reading it without having to feel like what has to be good before I have to say oh I just write rom-coms don't don't look me in the eye I'm just it's just rom-coms that's really interesting because Lindsay it is good I'm not just saying this because you're here (laughs) there's a real like you're writing for for smart readers in the way that I think you know someone like Nancy Mitford is so light and funny and unafraid of of humor I think it was really good to learn early that you know funny books were the most joyous thing because I think I was 12 or 13 when I read American Psycho and I remember that my parents had lots of like weird cool books in their spare room and lots of like those lovely really early sort of 80s Picador ones and I remember um I think I read some Laurie Moore short stories of not knowing what they were and they like the feeling of them really stayed in my head but I also read American Psycho and (laughs) really took from it that I mean I think Brett Easton Ellis is phenomenal and can be phenomenal and I sort of love that really creepy chilly cocaine ironic detachment feeling but also the misogyny in that was like exhilarating it's like okay you've got to to be a writer you've got to hate women you've got to hate everyone you've got to really like nastiness for the sake of nasty and I think in the way that like you know the teens of the 70s and 80s you know loved a video nasty um yeah 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 there's nothing more. It's like saying pasta isn't video nasty. <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust. But it, took, it did take me a little while to unlearn that, that yeah. you could love a reader. And I love that your books are so seem so loving of their readers. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just... It honestly did... It's ridiculous saying it out loud to me now. I, I live in America. I've done a lot of therapy. Um, but it feels ridiculous to me to say it took me a really long time to learn that it was okay to write just something that was joyous Mm. and to not apologize and to not feel like I had to make it mean more than it means and and it still has meaning I think if you have if you've got nothing to say why would you write so there's always something to say in it but yeah you don't have I know a lot of people who feel like they've got to try and reach for some sort of critical acclaim or literary Mm. worthiness when what they do is amazing and they they can't see it and I think it is my favourite drum to beat and all of my friends are listening and saying she's going to start down with the patriarchy but it's like we have we've been told we've been told I didn't make that up for myself that my books weren't good enough I learned that someone told me that and I internalised it and I carried it around and now I think I get messages from people that are like oh I was in hospital and my so-and-so was poorly and I took your book with me and I, it took me a really long time to be able to like value that message and say, wow, that that means something. That means as much as me being like, the secret history like changed my life. It's incredible. I'm, you know, partly northern, so like can't accept any compliments of any kind ever. And partly just yeah, was told that my my work doesn't mean anything. So I'm a woman, and it's about women, and it's about falling in love, and that's stupid. When I'm like, what's more important? What what do what do humans want more? So yeah, it makes me really happy whenever anyone says that they read it and they 
it was easy. It was an easy read that made them happy. Awesome. I worked really hard to make it an easy read that made you happy. So yay. <laughs> so maybe more recently, Lord knows we've all had you know all kinds of hard times. Are there books that have done that for you, especially in the sort of women's commercial fiction, books that have really uplifted you and taken yeah. you away? I, I used to not be able to read when I was writing and I was always writing. So I really struggled. And the last couple of years, I actually... Like, I read more in the last two years than I've read in forever. And I read literally everything I could get my hands on. Um, I get sent, I get, do get sent a lot of proofs, which is one of the best things ever about being an author. People just send you books. Um, but I read, I remember reading Gillian McAllister's latest, and I love, I love her, and I love that. What's um, that called? Is it Last that night because there's Vary McFarlane obviously who again is an incredible author who I love and hers was oh, last God, hers was last night and Jilly's was, was that, that night. night I um, do think Vary yeah. McFarlane is one of my favourite favourite favourites and she's another yeah. one who writes she's such a smart writer oh, an you know her monster. universe yeah. is so full and so vivid <laughs> and she's writing for for smart women and yeah. I think that there are Again, it's the patriarchy and it's sexism that you know we are legion. There are way more smart women <laughs> yeah. than yeah. No, I know people and want to. Vari's work cop onto. is exceptional. I think I think Vari is an incredible writer. I think I think what she's really good at is is she does know exactly what she wants to say, and she's so good at striking that balance. And she's only coming into it more and more with every book. She just gets it sounds so stupid, but she's more and more powerful in her work with every single book, and the fact that literally people aren't hurling her books at you in the street every time you leave your house is like offensive to me they should be she's that good um but i love her i love her work you know sells you know as you do in her tens of thousands of billions like it's not like people don't know but i'm like people need to be talking about her more we don't talk about it because there is still a little bit of like oh it's my secret shame it's my guilty and i don't believe in guilty pleasure like if something gives you pleasure why on earth would you feel guilty about it like as long as it's you know consenting and legal go nuts hell Um, i was raised catholic like every single one of my pleasures is guilty. <laughs> yeah. How dare you? How very dare you? Um, but yeah, I did. I read a lot of commercial fiction. I actually, at the very beginning of lockdown, like I went back and did a lot of rereading, and it was stuff I hadn't read. Like I bought a load of the Sweet Valley High novels off eBay and was like, I'm just curious because these were so formative mm. to me. I want to see what they're like. I'm like, oh, so, okay. I'd love to go back into that. And you're talking about being a serious reader yeah. and that <laughs> perfect, glossy Elizabeth and Jessica's universe. Oh. I, I would live there now. I know. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, I did move to LA. I tried. <laughs> you know, I was like, how where is, is my that, lavalier? How much does that inform your decision? How much is that? It, it, not, not, as much as, not as much as you'd think. We very much don't live in Sweet Valley. Living in LA is really weird to read the books back. And like they just all go in the beach. No one goes to the beach. It's an hour away. Like, <laughs> it's, everything's an hour away in LA. It's traffic. The traffic rumors are true, uh, but it was really interesting to go back and read them. And you get that nostalgia, but also there's so much you don't remember about it, and you wonder how many of these slightly suspicious attitudes you internalized and carried around with you. Oh God, like, I'm sure there was like more than one occasion. Bruce Patman is like borderline rapist. Probably more than borderline, and. I don't quite know how this would work, that he'd be having sex with the wrong twin or trying to. Yeah, There's one of the early books, if not the first book, I can't remember, but Jessica gets involved with the bad boy Mm. and he takes her to a bar and, like, strands her and the police pick her up and the policeman thinks it's Elizabeth and she lets him and then Elizabeth is, like, shunned at school for slut-shamed for, like, being found at a bar with this guy and then Jessica eventually owns up to it, but... 
it's all just utter slut shaming and all she did was go out with this dude who was an actual monster like and he was the one that was driving the car drunk and wouldn't let them out of the car and was trying to attack her but the whole all of the blame is on the twins the whole way through and it's so scary that they were the attitudes we were given and told were acceptable in our fun teenagers literature when you think about how many people are reading those books and i'm not entirely sure of my sweet valley history and the dates but i'm thinking about i guess around about the aids crisis and all of the things making us super 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 anxious about having sex in a happy and relaxed manner well and they're very i mean they're very chaste books and anyone who does have sex uh, is shunned and it's very much like horror movie rules where it's like, well, if you had sex, you're going to die. Um, they don't die in Sweet Valley, but they are shunned or reformed. So you either have to sort of be redeemed by the good twin. You know, it's usually Elizabeth takes in the slutty one and makes it her friend and you're like, oh my God, oh my God. This is a very reductive question, but did you want to be Elizabeth or Jessica? <laughs> I very much wanted to be Jessica because I was absolutely an Elizabeth. Same, same. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It, I felt very closely attached to those books. So they were fun to go back and read, but like I read those, like I said, I read Virginia Andrews again. I actually went back and read all of the Suki Sackhouse novels, the True Blood oh, series. Wow. Did you read them before they were on TV? I had read, I read them when they were on TV, when the TV was announced, because I, I grew up in the 90s, so like, yes, please, vampires, all of them, every time. Are you a Twilight person? Yes-ish. I was a Buffy person. Ah, because I am 41, so I was a Buffy person. But then I was working in children's publishing when Twilight came out, so I, she says in inverted commas, had to read it. I was working at Bliss Magazine, again. Oh, it was a uh... dream. Yeah, so you, you had to. Um, and I, I remember just... My Twilight. It was such a weird thing, because I have such an, a massive amount of respect for anything that is that beloved by teenagers. Mm. Um, and obviously then being, I was very much deep in my, I'm just reading Michael Cunningham, so I'm not, I'm afraid <laughs> I can't enjoy this. But I had such respect for how it's, it sees into the soul of a teenage girl. Mm. Like when you are, and, and a lot of romance, not even just teenage girls, but like Bella is just an ordinary girl. And then this eternal being chooses you what do you want more as a teenager? What do you want more than to be chosen and seen and acknowledged as special? And it's like, it is genius in its simplicity. It really is. I absolutely go back and forth on this. And I think that when one is a Buffy fan and Buffy is such a brilliant, you know, fierce, fiery, like yeah. ass kicker and she's so inspiring and she's like a strong woman. And then you're like, oh, Bella, she's such a drip. <laughs> but yeah, when I was, you know, a teenage girl, I felt like a drip. There's nothing, I'm, you know, again, it's like wanting to be Jessica yeah. and being Elizabeth. There's nothing I would have liked more than to be a Buffy. But I think if I had been an age appropriate reader of Twilight, I would have felt really seen really like seen. and I think the genius Bella is written in a very deliberate way where sort of stuff happens to her and she could be anyone yeah. down to like she's never really physically described I think it's like this you know she's got sort of her hair is sort of lovely and her, but it's all yeah. like vague so well, anyone can be in that gap yes and absolutely she's very often described by others mm. and everything she's very reactive everything happens to yeah. Bella like the only choice 
she really makes, I think, is, I mean, they say at the beginning when she's like, I'm going to choose to offer up my life in service of someone I love. And I never thought about it. And, and I, that's an amazing, I genuinely think that's such a good beginning. Like, literally never gave much thought about how I would die. But yeah. to die in the place of someone I love seems like a good reason. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm in. If I'd been 14, you would have torn that book out of my cold, dead hands. Like, there would have been no way. Um, but yeah, she's she's such a great cipher for you to just project yourself onto. And yeah, it's that total thing, isn't it, where this eternal stud picked you out of... He's lived 200 years and waited for you this whole time. And then a hot werewolf fancies you as well. So, like, rock and roll. Do it, Bella. Go nuts. Something I'm curious about is whether there's much of a difference that you notice living in America and in Los Angeles in particular, the sort of general, like, the attitude to reading and how people read and what people read and where yeah. where they get their books. Because I'm imagining it being a little more extreme. Yes. Um, well, I lived in New York before I lived in LA as well. And New York was... I moved to New York in 2009, so it was... I just published it here um, when I moved there. And I would go on endless dates with gentleman from Brooklyn and they would say I'm a writer I'd be like oh my god I'm a writer and then they would immediately shit all over what I did and I'd be like oh I bet okay. they had a book published they either know. they had like 10 unfinished manuscripts in their bottom drawer and they were sat in a coffee shop working on their blog and I'm like fair play to you you're doing it that is you doing it and I'm doing it too in a different way but it, New York was rife with intellectual snobbery um, in a way that the country can be I mean We'd be here all day if we want to talk about anti-intellectualism in America, <laughs> like anti-intellectualism with Lindsay Gill. Yeah, I mean, bits. Jesus. Um, but yeah, it it was really hard, and a lot of my being down on what I did was the fact that as soon as I was published, I'd left the UK, so I never really saw my books doing well. I wasn't really aware of it, um, and I lived in America where they weren't out yet, and where people just made fun. Like they were like, "Oh my god, like that's hilarious that that's what you've chosen to do," and I was like, "Is it?" I thought it was pretty great. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but then when I moved to LA, because you you live in New York and you tell people you're a writer and they say, oh my God, what have you pu- are you published? What have you published? Who is your publisher? You move to LA and you say, I'm a writer. And they say, what show? Because they just <laughs> immediately assume you're in showbiz. They don't, they don't, no one thinks book. And there's actually like quite a big author community in LA. And a lot of people left New York and moved to LA. And especially romance and I'm very much classed as a romance author in America, whereas here we have sort of commercial women's fiction, yeah. which doesn't really exist there. And it sort of straddles both worlds. Because I suppose here as well, there is that, you know, and I find it frustrating. Like, well, where does your book go in the bookshop? Like, yes. No, when, yes. no, what I mean, <laughs> table, no, no, no. <laughs> On a shelf. But I think that having been to the, you know, the mega stores and, you know, I know Barnes yeah. & Noble sort of still exists yeah. and I know it's very different now, but there is that weird, like, just the breadth of it and the yeah. volume and the number of books yeah. they sort of have to categorise. No, and that's one of the reasons everything has to be so carefully categorised there. And, and romance is like massively on the up, massive resurgence in romance. It's an amazing community. I've made so many new friends over the last couple of years because people have really rallied around and it is women looking after women and it's been amazing to see. But there's also a part of it where it's not reductive because it's, I don't think it's reductive if it's done out of love, mm. but there is a whole thing where it's like what what tropes are in this book, which which boxes are ticked. So is it a friends to lovers? Is it an enemies to lovers? Is there, it's just one bed? Is it forced together? Like, is it forbidden love? Is it second time around? And 
like there is a industry sort of standard where you've got to hit tropes to fit in boxes to sell um, and I think part of that is just what's been happening in the world the last couple of years people want to know a romance novel to a romance reader is the same as going to see a Marvel movie or yeah. a James Bond movie is that like you want the catharsis you want to know what you're getting out of it at the end you want to know James Bond's going to save the world you want to know the Avengers are going to defeat thick purple daddy than us you know it's like it's you know you want to have that moment in the middle where you're like oh how is it going to work out but I want to know I'm coming out of it satisfied and happy and I'm not going to feel worse than I went in um yeah. which obviously I, I love an ambiguous ending I love an ambiguous ending but that's not what people have come for mm. in a rom-com and if I went to a rom-com with an ambiguous ending I would probably be a little bit upset at the moment so it's it is interesting but yeah LA is LA is really interesting. People are way more impressed in LA when you tell them that you write books because well, they just don't see it. That gladdens my heart, at least. I had uh, two questions for you. And I guess one was about any romance authors in particular that you have discovered living over there that maybe here we don't know about that we should know about. And then I also want to know, saying before I forget, about your favourite ambiguous endings. Oh, um, now I, that, I can't remember anything about <laughs> anything I've ever read. Um, I just read a book called The X-Hex, uh, which I think is Erin Sterling is the author's name. She writes under two different names because she writes different kinds of books. And obviously in America, you can only have one type of book with one name on it because it will confuse people, me here, where I can't remember. Um, but yeah, it was a, ro- a romance, a rom-com called The X-Hex that was came out around Halloween. It was Halloween sort of themed in that it was vaguely witchy. It's not vaguely witchy, it is witchy, but it's so fun. And it was the first rom-com, American rom-com in particular, that I'd read in a minute that was just genuinely, genuinely, like, laugh out loud, could not put it down. And there's a lot of good romance coming out of the States right now, like Emily Henry, who wrote Beach Read, and You and Me on Vacation. I think she's amazing. Um, K.M. Jackson, Kwana Jackson, her new book, How to Marry Keanu Reeves in 90 Days, just came out, which obviously, like, super, as you can tell from the title, super fun. Uh, you've got uh, Sarah McLean writing Regency romances, a super feminist, super, super fun. Uh, but the ex-hex genuinely... Like, I, I could not put it down. It was so funny and smart and feminist. It ticked every box. Super hot, like, genuinely sexy. I was like, oh, <laughs> feel a little bit like I want to go in the other room and finish this. It just shouldn't <laughs> be read in polite company. But it was in a very tasteful, fun way. It wasn't... In the US, they love using the word smart. They love smart. Like, they will literally go on Bookstagram and people will rate smart levels. And I'm from a world where smart is a bad word. Um, but smart is, like, a grading. Uh, they'll say spice or smart in the oh. romance community and I am zero spice or smart my books are zero smart and it's deeply disappointing for a lot of people <laughs> I don't know I'm trying to think of it there's a hint of you it's know light kissing there's <laughs> light kissing Is that and some over mild the peril light yeah, kissing. Yeah, yeah, mild peril light kissing over the trouser touching that's potential for yes. smart at least but I love it sounds as though there are people who are subverting those expectations and taking something that maybe seems quite rigid and working out how to do it yeah. stealthily in their own terms. Yeah, it's been nice to see. It's been really nice to see, and especially to see women coming together to just say, hey, let's all support each other. And everyone quotes for everyone now, everyone promotes everyone, everyone will like say, hey, read this, it's great. There's not, there very much used to be an element of like well she's you know it was pie it's like there's limited pie and I need the pie but now it's like hey we'll just make more pie let's just all have pie there's loads of pie um, and it's a nice time to be doing it I've been doing it for a while and it's not always been like that 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. We'll be back with Lindsay soon but now it's time for my steal of the week I've chosen the female chef stories and recipes from 31 women redefining the British food scene by Claire Finney and Liz Seabrook this is heaven it's the sort of cookbook that can be read as a novel it's inspiring fierce and comforting Romy Gill's dull recipe is worth the price of admission alone but the interviews with brilliant women are brilliant in the words of Angela Hartnett My aunt always says women run everything in a way they just don't go on about it. The Female Chef is published by Hoxton Mini Press, a publisher I adore, and it's out now. And also, this would make an excellent Christmas present. Now, back to Lindsay. I've really, really noticed it with you on social media and what a generous cheerleader you are. And when you talk about books, I always want to... I I really love books. I really love books. And I just think for so long... I only read what I thought I should read and I didn't dare read what I thought someone would judge and I it makes me mad that I cost myself so many amazing books and like I do love all kinds of books like um there's a book out this year uh, Megan Abbott who wrote Dare Me I think it's probably her most famous book but her new book The Turnout it's like a literary thriller but very literary I loved it like I couldn't put it down I loved it so much but then the next book I read after that was Andy J. Christopher's Hot Under His Collar which was like a very sexy Fleabag inspired uh, Catholic priest so you know pick that one up Um, (laughs) girl who falls in love with a Catholic priest and I'm like you can read both and you're not stupid you're not less than you're allowed to enjoy things imagine if you only ate kale because it's good for you you know like you're allowed to do all of the things Um, and I do try and shout it from the rooftops because I didn't hear it said to me so I just want to say it to other people I really really hope that that is one of our lessons I think it's far too soon to you know work out what we have learned over the last 18 months (laughs) but I think that you know prioritise pleasure is um, 
self-esteem says. Right? Yeah. No, I've spent a lot of money on therapy, as I say. Uh, when I moved to America, they made me. Uh, <laughs> but it was just like, let my money have been spent for your use. You know, like, just don't do something that you don't want to do. Don't. I'm, I can't not finish a book. Like, I cannot not finish. I have to read all the way through. And I'm trying really hard to get to a place where I can not finish. But I also I feel rude. I'm like, I feel like they're going to know. I'm like, someone's going to know that I didn't finish it. And then I'm incredibly rude. What it's like to show up and sit at your desk and do the work. And you know that every time a book comes in the post, you're like, I know how much of a person's life this represents. Oh, it's this is the thing. And it's the question that I'm asked the most at events. It's like, how long does it take? Or how do you write? And I I was like, it's you just have to sit there and do it. And there is no magic. There's no magic trick. There is no advice I can give you as to how I do it and how you should do it. Everyone does it differently, but ultimately everyone sits at a desk and they write or on a settee, or like me, which is why I've got a bad back. But it's like everyone <laughs> just sits with a laptop and writes a book and there's no way around it. There's no trick. So the hours that have gone into that person's work, how dare I not finish it, you know? Do you think that's the people who come to your events and want to ask and want to find out, you know, about you and your books and your world, that it is the process that eludes them? Are they all frustrated, aspiring writers? Like There must be some alternative to the sitting. Yeah, I think, well, I also think social media has been so interesting because I first published 12 years ago and we weren't where we are with social media at all. Um, and I love social media because I I write, so I'm on my own a lot of the day. <laughs> like a lot of hours I'm just sat on my own with a laptop. So I love to check in. I always call it like my work friends, like my Twitter friends and my work friends because I can't go to the kitchen and make a cup of tea and catch up on the gossip. So I'll just pop on Twitter and check out what's happening. It's a water cooler. Yes, there are exactly. unwitting colleagues. <laughs> Exactly. I was like, what's going on? Everyone knows. Gossip, gossip, gossip. Let's talk about succession. Um, So that's sort of where I checked in with social media. But um, I think, especially in the UK, because I lived in New York and then LA, when when social media blew up and when my books came out, I think some people are mistaken into thinking my life is, life is somehow quite glamorous. I'm laughing because it's not. It does seem glamorous. It does a... seem that, but it's just because that's the sun is out Twitter. and the sun is not my friend. So that's no good to me. I am northern. I am of northern <laughs> stock. I don't see the sun. Um, but I totally get it. And I do think there are some people who think, some people must think my writing process is somehow therefore more glamorous than it, just me in my pyjamas oh, telling my like cat to get off my laptop. Sketch where they sort of on daytime telly, they're imagining a day in the life of Joan Collins and then yeah. she throws her diamond-encrusted credit cards at the servants. Yes, exa- exactly. This is it. I'm like, maybe I'll pop to Barney's and buy a diamond-encrusted pot of creme de la mer and then I'll come home and like f- write four words with my pointer fingers <laughs> and move on. And I'm like, no, I'm sat until like two o'clock in the morning screaming at word, being like, why have we only written four sentences today? It's it's not pretty. It's never pretty. Oh, God, I'm having a horrible, horrible moment of um, realisation <laughs> enlightenment where I think about the worst thing I do. And it's not even like I'm going and browsing on Net-A-Porte like a glamorous person. I'm going on the outnet yeah. looking for things <laughs> that, you know, the cheaper end of what they sell that will make me feel like the glamorous yeah. writer person I would oh, like to be. I, every time, and I would say it's towards the end of a first draft, the packages start to arrive. <laughs> and then they all have to go back because that is how, sometimes it's how you get through, right? You're having a horrible day of writing and you're like, maybe I'll just buy 17 things from ASOS and then they arrive and you hate yourself and they all have to go back but there is that minute where you're like this is how we did it today kids and for anyone who was wondering uh but yeah it's 
it's not cute. It is my husband asking if I've showered. Um, he does that also. I'm positive. I'm positive he's got an account on boohoo.com. You know, <laughs> he's like he wants the Love Island outfits. He's, he's obviously a big fan. I am I right in thinking? Because you talked a bit about vampires. Um, do you have any interest in, in sort of horror, and Stephen King? And- not really. Kind of I think that, that James Herbert experience <laughs> really knocked me on the head as a kid. Um, I read, I used to read a lot of teen horror. Like I, did, I read like all the point, point horrors. horrors. Yeah, yes, I was obsessed. I and then I didn't really follow it through. I think reading the James Herbert again recently, because it is the 80s. I don't know anything about James Herbert as a human. I don't know the whole thing. But reading it, it so struck me that it is so, I don't want to say misogynistic because I don't know if it, that some of it definitely is. He refers to a woman as a bull dyke more than one time. I'm like, oh, we don't do that now, sir. We don't do that. Um, I'm just thinking how interesting it is, and I absolutely sort of concur and know what you mean, and you can get into Foucault and Derrida and intention, yeah. but um, woman to woman, you're like, oh, I don't know if I can call this misogynistic. No, this I felt it. that. Yeah, that's only right. my opinion. As a woman, like, oh, my God, Lindsay. Like, yes. And if nothing else, it's Screw just you, James very heavily male gaze. Mm. Um, and it was just like the main character that carries that brings you through the book is a man. Oh, fair enough. Um, but you're sort of led to believe that his partner is this sort of she's a conduit for magic. So they move to the magic cottage and they talk about this woman who lived there before, who was sort of the guardian of the magic of the cottage. And you're led to believe this woman is going to be the new guardian of it and then at the end it's like but surprise it was me <laughs> and she was just supposed to get me there and all, I was reading it I was like oh you see what you've done there James is and all the way through the male there's one point where he's talking about his girlfriend walking out into the garden in her little short shorts and there's a vicar come round to see them and he's like and I can see the vicar appreciating her slender velvety legs because even though he's a man of the cloth he's just human I'm like that is your fucking girlfriend oh. like but he just he he's reducing women into objects all the way so I'm like yeah it's not misogynistic but it, it is um, but it's just so heavily male gaze every woman is presented in terms of her attractiveness to him uh, and what whether or not he can bang her uh, and then sort of you know the lesbian character saves the day at one point and he's sort of like oh good good on Val hey you know it's clever in her sensible brogues and you're like oh my god who knew yeah who knew I she thought you so were of absolutely no use to me woman wise but you've proved me wrong it was yeah because she well she's his girlfriend's agent so that's why she's tolerated uh, but he's like she's just a 20 percenter she's a 20 percenter I'm like no she literally like keeps your partner in in work so shut shut your mouth maybe fella you write set your session museum for musician for Phil Collins like that's his job in the book he's a session musician for Phil Collins <laughs> and it's like he goes to London to lay down some tracks with Phil and I was dying with laughter Why reading does it does Phil Collins no are you allowed oh, to oh I hope so I massively hope Phil got wind of this in 1987 and was like this is spot on just and like, then he faxed his wife to do also like I just feel like there is a certain connection between the two themes uh, that Phil probably thought it's a sort of really sound book my kind of book <laughs> were there any books I think Virginia Andrews aside yeah. perhaps for this <laughs> where you the first time you were aware of a sense of like a female gaze and you know that Honestly, women could um, be in charge I, I, mean, I read just only if I've I'm sounding like I stopped reading in 1997, and I might have. Um, but I read a lot of Paula Danziger and a lot of Judy Bloom. I feel but like Paula Danziger, Paula Danziger. We never talk, well, we do sometimes, Obsessed. but I think Every she's phenomenal. One. And 
so dark and so real and yeah. I don't think she gets anything like no, it's not her snaps because I, I preferred her to Judy Bloom to like for no real reason that I could put my finger on because I haven't looked back why but Herbert Remember Me to Herald Square was like that was the beginning of my love affair with New York and you know that led to me visiting New York in my 20s which led to me writing about New York which led to me moving to New York and I still have my original copy of Remember Me to Herald Square and I can tell you the plot of that story from beginning to end I loved it so much and just remember me to Harold Square, sorry, because the real place is Harold Square and the character in the book always misheard it as, as Harold and thought it was a person, but it's Harold. She always said Harold. Um, but there was a book, um, This Place Has No Atmosphere, where this family moves to the moon, which is amazing. I and know that one. oh my that God, it's incredible. so good. And the, the pistachio prescription, I remember loving. Um, was it the, There's a Bat in Bank Five? I think that's Paul Danziger yes. as well. And my parents got divorced and she wrote about things like that. And in the 80s, it was still very shameful. We were still like, don't tell kids at school that your dad's like, you know, it was like 1989 and I'm eight and I don't know what to do with this information. So having those books, sort of in the late 80s, early 90s, it was massive for me. And they were just by a woman for, and, and I'm, you know, I'm sure they gave comfort to all kinds of people. But for me, it felt like by a woman for a woman. I think for me, it was the cat ate my gym suit. Oh, and yes. I was a tubby girl at school and there wasn't and I was really I really really felt like the only one and I was really like bullied quite you know cruelly and violently but I sort of because I was so little I didn't really understand that it wasn't right what was happening and no one really seemed interested in sort of presenting it and I thought it was my lot to it and I think she was an older character but to have someone like her as a heroine and to write about yeah. what it felt like to inhabit her body and that she had sort of hopes and dreams and she had a teacher who saw her. It, sorry, I've got to quite emotional. Um, no, 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 I totally, I would give you a hug. But oh. <laughs> like, well, we recording. do not hug in these times. No, how dare um, we? How dare we feel feelings? But no, I've, I've not read it for a long time, probably since then, but I just remember really being... You know, I felt like I'd been skinned, yeah. but in a, a nice way. Like, I cannot believe this woman doesn't know me, but does know me. Yeah, no, no, I know. I, I, but that's to me, is why I, I write what I write now is like I want, I want someone to to see themselves. Like, it is so incredibly powerful, like to be. Oh, no, no, I, I get I it. Don't make a habit of it. It's so powerful to be seen, and that's to the thought that anyone would dismiss something like Paula Danziger just because it's just a teeny rom-com or a teeny comedy and it's like no it made a difference to your life and those and that was me growing up and I always wanted to write YA I always assumed I would write YA because they were the books yeah. I same I'm like I'm not I'm not gonna cry I am gonna cry um I was bullied and I had big thick glasses and I was a heavy set kid broad across the beam as my thoughtful mother who is not with us anymore who can't defend herself but like my mum was really petite and very very pretty and very very popular and all those things and I wasn't and it, I knew it you know it's like you were bullied at school and then you were made aware that you might not quite be what you were expected to be at home yeah. and oh, it, wow. it was the same thing those books for me were the were the place where I could perhaps see that there was a place for me to fit when I didn't feel like there was and that's I guess ultimately that's what I'm trying to do is say you might not think you fit in to a place this second but you do like you do, everyone does but to find a place to be seen and to be acknowledged I just think it's so it's so hard and books can do that for you well I mean I think on a night like this it's the most like beautiful uplifting romance and I love the sort of the 
because it is that it's what everyone wants where it starts in a place that is real and a place you can recognize straight away and it takes you to somewhere (laughs) fabulous and glittering and spectacular where you want to visit but as well as the the romantic relationship and the exciting relationship there's also a really you know like awful relationship and it's awful in a really like tangible and recognizable way and it's not dramatically bad but it is so bad and I don't want to give too much away and I was just thinking about the many many women who hopefully will feel like oh this is what you know my life and these things that I feel like I should just put up with and not ask for too much and not complain about you know maybe maybe they will change things and I hope they do maybe they will just feel seen and they will have a bit of a blub and maybe that's that moment of comfort is enough but it made me think and I hope you think this is a compliment of um one of my, I was going to say one of my favourite Marion Keys. Who am I kidding? They're all my favourite. <laughs> I was um, say, um, like all of them. I think all the time about um, Last Chance Saloon, and there's that super serious, really you know sad cancer story at its heart, but also the brilliantly observed and brutal and awful of it. Tara and her terrible boyfriend Thomas, and I think Marion always comes back to these really intensely touching and moving and devastating the things that women can do to cope and our addictions and I know we laugh about ordering 19 things from ASOS in the (laughs) you know when we're sad we add to cart (laughs) (laughs) that's what we do (laughs) but also it's a trope isn't it as I think older there are certain bits of like commercial women's fiction and again it's like and I think Helen Fielding is a truly gifted and masterful writer and I think she was holding up a mirror to something and writing with great wit and great thought but people criticise Bridget oh she's just obsessed with her weight and that's not very feminist yeah, that's now. and I read that book when I was I read Bridget Jones when I was about 16, 17 and my stepmom again all of my family weren't massive readers but everyone had a few books squirrelled away mm. like my granddad had this massive bookcase of Jeffrey Archer's which I, was, I quickly realised weren't for me but then he had like Tom Stoppard's and stuff which I did read didn't get them but I knew they were hilarious and then like my my mum had her Barbara Taylor Bradford's and my stepmom had Bridget Jones and I remember I was staying there and I just I found it because I was wandering around my dad's house as you do um, and I stayed up all night to read it and I nicked it apologies Deb I still got it <laughs> like I still got her paperback that copy cool. yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the original paperback with the silhouette of the yeah. girl smoking the woman smoking Bridget um, and I had never seen anything like it and at 17 about to go out into the world mm. Um, but I read that and then I read Watermelon by Marion Keys like at the same sort of time and I remember lines of Watermelon like I can quote very specific lines from it because I didn't know that those books existed and could exist and it you were was amazing allowed you were allowed to write those books. yeah because I was still reading books that they gave me at school that I had to read and books at the library that they had you know and, and my library it was a very small village library the choices were very limited I read everything they had and they didn't have any of these very new current books or at least I wasn't getting them because they were always out I don't know but those two books Watermelon and Bridget Jones's Diary I was like what we can do this and then a few years later it was Devil Wears Prada that I, I didn't know I didn't know you could do this because um, then I was coming out of uni and I was chock full of yeah, like Kurt Vonnegut and Bloody Catcher in the Bloody Rye and Great Gatsby up to the tits, you know? So <laughs> I was like, oh, only these books. I think you'll find I'm reading all of the queer theory canon now. And they were great books and I learned a lot. It's like Sound of the Fury every morning, noon and night. Um, but then suddenly they were like, no, you can just read books that are about life now and can tell you something. 
I've reread Watermelon recently and I was really surprised at how fresh it yeah. feels and how it's so, you know, stylistically such a sort of powerful comic novel. And I've learned so, so much about writing from it, just from like the rhythm that she writes with. Yeah. And you can really hear the, the thought and care. Yes. And the way, and it's because you read, you can read it in so many ways, and you're not thinking, "Oh, this is really like a laborious." It, but it's, I think, you can tell the the skill and the craft and the voice, yeah. so, and that's what makes it such a, a pleasure to read. But yeah. I mean, I think that Bridget Jones was the, because all you know, she's obsessed with the weight and getting a man. But we were, but, but we were, because we, we were told to be, so we were. I <laughs> think I would have been again. It's that you know my sort of antidote to American Psycho, that kind of age, 12, 13-ish. I'm 36, so sort of... I I don't think I got to read it, like, when it came out. I was... I think I'd read the odd column in The Independent, which my granny got, and I thought, this is... This is a newspaper. I thought newspapers were very boring. And then I think I got to... I got out of the library... Yeah. Possibly. But just the idea that she's got this, she's got a London life and a career yeah. and she'll perpetua is awful. But I love the idea of like, have my own flat and a cool job and go out and get yeah. drunk with these like glamorous pals. Yeah, your chosen family. It was like one of the first examples I saw of chosen urban family. Yes. That was like, what? I can do and this? Sort of living, you know, being a family and having a I'm not I think, you know, choose your choice. And if you want to sort of go and have children and have a family and I know that she you know yearns for it in one way and I think that's a a wonderful thing to do but also it was the first alternative I was offered and the sort of I think lots of the story and even Randall Dickin and Austin and I adore Jane Austen and I knew you had to get married and have a family but the thrill and I think as a a feminist writer she does not get enough credit for that no, for truly. painting this a world where women had not been in the workforce for that long no and i think we've got a really i mean i'm really pleased that things are being revisited now and we're re-establishing re-evaluating and things are getting lifted up and things are being questioned and it's great but i i i have a lot of people whenever i talk about bridget people say the exact same thing to me like oh but she was just obsessed with her weight and getting a man and I think, but you, there is a contextual thing with Bridget where at the time it was strikingly feminist because it was, she was only concerned with what she wanted. Yeah. And she was allowed to be. And that mirror was never, had never, I'd never seen it held up before. And like you, like I'd read A Shot of Austin, I read The Brontes, like Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre are two of my favourite novels of all time. And you look at Jane Eyre and I'm like, there's, there's, you can read Jane Eyre. And I know it's obviously it's Pride and Prejudice, but you can read Jane Eyre and see a lot of Bridget of yeah. the time. And I, I think, yeah, Bridget props to Bridget when also just the writing is good whenever I'm stuck mm. if I'm having a bad time and I've forgotten how to write a book which is sort of every other day I'll be I'll pick up Bridget and read a few pages of Bridget and be like oh yeah comedy I remember you skipping back to Marion um like a, a mad shill but <laughs> I just think about how there's much so Marian. much no I've read thing. and I really I have this, a special fondness for any women's commercial fiction written in the mid to late 90s. Yeah. I would quite like to cosplay the 90s in the way that other people <laughs> cosplay medieval times. Um, but the, the they're, trope they're of... They're all doing it. Yay! They're all doing it. Like, I went in H&M the other day and it looked like Clockhouse. I tell oh. you. It looked like 1994 Clockhouse and I was very concerned <laughs> and it's very British. not other 36-year-old women though, is it? It's 16-year-olds who weren't born. It's 16-year-olds and I was very uncomfortable and clearly was not meant to be there. Like, that's how I felt right away. They were all but, doing TikToks in the middle of H&M. Like, oh, blimey. <laughs> Nana felt but quite out of Those books were all very much like, oh, you didn't call me, so I'm going to eat this whole tub of Haagen-Dazs. Yeah. And 
Marion, I think, takes in general that addictions and obsessions and food especially and writes about being crippled by it. And there's in, I think, How to Be a Woman, there's something Kat Moran says, which I think about constantly, about how, and I wish I could remember how she phrased it, but that if you're a woman and if you are either a formal carer or you've just got lots of people around you to look after and depend on you, you cannot go and like bang a load of heroin or knock back a bottle of whiskey you can eat packets of biscuits at a time and if you're unhappy and no one is listening to you and like food is something that is used to torture women and it's a silencer and it's a really easy way of keeping us in check and I think that the writers who who write about that and again it's a really subversive thing to do you think oh chiclet trope up in grown-ups again which I loved and I yeah I read that with new eyes because I've I've had disordered eating and I've had issues with it my whole life and I remember because you just didn't you weren't allowed to talk about it food either had to be something that you're very carefree about Mm. or you just didn't touch it you're not allowed to just have an an ordinary relationship where you're neutral about food and that's new and I love it Um, but I remember when I lived in Brooklyn there was a comedian she's an actress now she's in like Jenny Slate, she's an amazing actress, doing oh, so I so love well. Jenny Slate. Yeah, so she, we were in Brooklyn at the same time, and we would always go and see her comedy show. And she had a bit that was about she was on her way back from an audition, or she was on her way to an audition, and she saw this toddler in a Starbucks or a coffee shop with a muffin, and she's like, this little girl was just picking at a muffin and playing with it and messing around there, and she was like, and I just sat staring at her like you eat that fucking muffin. (laughs) She was like, do you know how... She was like, you have like a minimum number of years before you can no longer eat that muffin. She's like, you eat that muffin for me. I want to see every mouthful of that muffin go to... And I remember I'd never heard it said and never had it acknowledged. It was maybe 2009, 2010. I remember being like, yeah, I didn't eat a muffin in public because what if people think oh, look at that big fat bitch eating a muffin. You know, and I was like, oh my God, what is wrong with me? And then when you read something like Marion where that is acknowledged... And it's not dismissed out of hand because we've moved on from that now. You can totally have a muffin if you want one. It's like, no, you can't move on from it until you've addressed it. And Marion addresses those things with such a such care and honesty and vulnerability that, it, again, it's being seen, it's being seen. And I, I just don't, I don't think anyone does what Marion does as well as Marion, which, you know, makes sense. But she's just such a gift to us. Like, everything she does has... There's a point to it. Mm. There's a meaning to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you ever read or come across a book called Elegance by a writer called Kathleen Tesoro? I yes, I have it and I haven't read it. It's on my never ending TBR. It came out in like the year two thousand and I think I was given it it's as a Christmas present when I was a teenager. It's one of my friend's favourite books. Oh, and really? she gave it to me and I have that and she gave me that very recently and uh, Rodden by Curtis Sittenfield, who I love Curtis Curtis Sittenfield and I haven't read either of them yet. Yes. Oh my god, well, elegance is I've reread it many times and again I'm really surprised at how it lives. And again it feels it's written so beautifully and it's so funny and it's very it's sort of seductively you're pulled into that universe straight away, but it does go from her again quite playfully talking about changing um and it's that it starts in a marriage and not to do too much of a spoiler, you learn quite early that her husband is is gay and he's a self-hating gay man. He doesn't want to acknowledge who he is and he's been trying to run from it and she's been trapped in this unhappy reality and decides that changes must be made and that the theme of the book is this. it's a, like an old, old 1950s style guide she finds in a charity shop called Elegance and she's not, she's completely lost herself and doesn't know who she is or how to be or how to feel good and it's sort of her 
I suppose, like a, a spiritual and aesthetic journey. But it goes from her uh, with her flatmate. And her flatmate is like, you know, she talks about her and says, like, you know, she's thin and she can eat anything and I hate her. And she's just bought cake and she asks, asking me if she wants cake and I'm just having a black coffee and I, I want to punch her in the face. And that feels very sort of, you know, funny and yeah. relatable. And then it goes to, there's a, a scene at night where she's up and it's three o'clock in the morning and she's binge eating these like horrible sugar cookies. And she's like these taste awful and they've gone off and I don't know they're not even mine and I don't know what I'm doing to myself and then that same flatmate who the biscuits belong to comes down and she's like what are you doing these are stale and she's like I'm so sorry I ate your cookies and she's like no it's not about that it's about I'm worried about you yeah it's 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 fascinating to me what what we do and what we don't talk about and then that again it's how women's fiction it's so even I mean I I came in at the end of the 2000s when chiclet was still a term widely used and now people are like oh is it okay if I say chiclet is that derogatory I'm like well it's only derogatory if you say it in a derogatory yeah. sense I don't care call it whatever you want to call it I just write books um so I don't know but I think so often as soon as you put women's in front of it mm. it's less than to to certain people and not even just just men like to a lot of people you know be like oh I don't read I've got friends in friends in LA friends in America she's like oh I don't I don't really read women's fiction and I'm like oh I'm sorry yeah I know I'm like oh I'm sorry did I did I bring ovaries to this table do I identify as a woman it's not like what the fuck um it's nuts and you don't have to have ovaries to have a woman I am gonna put this out there don't have to have ovaries to be a woman and if you identify as a woman you're a woman you come to my house everything's fine um Family members who like don't read my books or haven't read my books are like, oh, it's not, it's not my cup of tea. Like, you've never read it. How would you like, know? you've never read it. And if it's not, that's fine. I'm like, it's just very weird to me. I'm like, yeah, I love Kazu Ishiguru, and I love Marion Keys, and I love the X Hex, and I love Wuthering Heights. You know, like, it's all things to all people. Like, you why sound not? like your reading has a broad beam, just, and I love yeah. that. But <laughs> it's true. Um, a broad beam of reading. <laughs> Very, very sadly, I just want to talk to you all day long, but I think we're coming close, yes. close to the end. So I was wondering if there are any books, the last book where you were a little bit trepidatious and thought, I'm not absolutely sure this is my cup of tea, and then thought, wow, this is great. Uh, it, for sure, The Turnout by Megan Abbott, which I mentioned. So my husband is a TV editor and he worked on Dare Me and he worked with Megan. And I read Dare Me and I liked it, but I didn't love it. Um, Megan's writing is like, it's a very acquired taste it's like very flowery and and beautiful and painstakingly constructed and I am very much a bare bones images driven put on the page what you need on the page and I tend to gravitate towards that in my reading so when the turnout came out I was like oh you know I really liked her and when you work with her we really liked her so like I'll I'll buy it as as if she needs the rub from me Uh, she's like an incredible incredible bestseller but I just fell in love with it and it was the sort of first 10-20 pages I was like I don't know it's a a lot of similes there's a lot of strange sentence structure that makes it quite lyrical Mm. I was like I'm not struggling and then within 10 20 pages i could not put it down so the turnout for sure um and i've uh, kazuo most recent one because i love him clara and, the sun. clara and the sun i will let's not because i mean you need another hour like i'm obsessed with him i'm obsessed with his themes like the futility of love in kazuo would be my non-existent phd paper like well, never let me go is one one of my absolute all-time eight favorite favorite books um and i the thing with Clara and the Sun, it was that thing where I'm scared to read it because what if I don't like it? Because I didn't love The Buried Giant. 
And I was like, what if I don't love it? And then I'm going to be devastated. And it's, it, we're still in lockdown. I'm like, I can't do this. Um, but I did love it and everything was okay. Hooray! <laughs> I'm sure ending. he's pleased to know that we came good in yeah, the end. Waiting. But what does Lindsay Kelks yeah, think? Literally I'm sure he's at home checking his emails. <laughs> Huge, huge thanks to Lindsay. On a Night Like This is published by HarperCollins and it's out now. And honestly, when the world seems grey and bleak and wintry, I cannot think of a better cure for the clock's gone back blues. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thank you so much to everyone who's left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and their favourite new book. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Lindsay at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on booktop.org. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from P.G. Woodhouse. I always advise people never to give advice. See you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.